Today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 21, and a section that mirrors the Olivet Discourse and some of the other Gospels. And we get all excited about this passage because we're like, we're going to find out when Christ is coming back. And so I have a date for you. Has nothing to do with when Christ is coming, but no. <laughs> but this morning, as we go through the text, and what 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 God has been putting on my heart as I've studied this and and dug into it, is this is so much bigger than oh, I want to know when Jesus is coming back. There's so much more at play here when we start to think why is Jesus telling this to his disciples? What is he telling us to his disciples? And, and we can get so caught up in what are the signs of the end times, and we'll talk about that a little bit this week and next week, that we forget that Jesus is intentionally preparing his disciples for trouble that is coming. He's intentionally saying, it's going to get worse. Things are going to be bad. Here's how I want you to respond. And that's a message I think we can relate with today. Have you ever hit a day where it felt like your world was falling apart. Where, where you just were blindsided by something that you had no idea what to do with. And for some, it's a crisis of faith. And they have to question, who is God? What is He doing? Do I still believe in God? Because we feel like things are falling apart. I, I've sat with families and held their hands that have unexpectedly lost a loved one. A brother, a sister, a child, a mom and a dad. I've sat with some of you that have gotten cancer diagnosis and that changes life and it, and it, it hits us across the side of the head with a two-by-four. I've cried with people who have sat and told me what's happening to their marriage or what they're going through. I've agonized over the loss of a child with some of you and with my wife and in situations I don't understand. I've seen the worry over loss of a place to live and uncertainty of the future. I've been angry with you over injustice, even this week. So what do we do? What do we do in a world that really stinks? And a world that is getting worse because it's a Genesis 3 fallen world. We're post-fall. And post-fall, things are being ruled by sin temporarily and in the the local setting of earth. But in the end, that's not the rule that is going to win. And so Jesus spends some time, I think, very intentionally and very lovingly and caringly preparing His disciples. What do you do when life is hard? What do you do when your world is rocked? And how do you respond? And that is how I think we need to come to this text, is to see what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He is graciously warning that trouble is coming. He is graciously warning his followers, trouble is coming, don't be distressed, but rather use the circumstances for God's purpose. That's the picture of this morning. If you get that point out of this morning, you've got this section of the text. He's warning, the trouble's coming, don't be distressed, use it for God's glory and God's purposes. Now, as we, we come to this text, Jesus is going to take some time and talk about prophecy. And he's going to talk about a couple of different aspects of prophecy. One of the aspects is the destruction of Israel or of, of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, which was their, their center of government, the center of their nation. And so he's going to encourage them to trust God even in the middle of this. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we said if we can trust God with our eternity, we can trust him with the now. Well, he's talked about the eternity. Now he's going to talk about the now and how we can trust God even through the difficulties. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 24, the first half of the Olivet Discourse. Next week, we'll get the second half. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one right under the seat right around you that you're welcome to pull that out and follow along. Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 5. And we start with verses 5 through 7 with the stunning prophecy. Jesus just, he he lowers the boom, and this is just, it boggles their mind. And we see in verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offering, he said, 
And that's where he sets it up. So they're walking through the temple, probably going to leave the temple and go back to the Mount of Olives. We, we know from comparing the Gospels together. And the disciples and his followers are just marveling at the incredible spectacle the temple was. Now, now we don't necessarily think that. We, we don't walk by Buaro and say, wow, that church building is amazing. But they did. In fact, the temple was considered one of the great wonders of the world at the time. And let, let me just sort of paint a picture so we can understand this. Herod the Great, and Herod was just all into himself and having amazing things. He had been on a building project. He started a rebuilding project on the temple. And, and he's taking the temple that was rebuilt with, with Ezra and those that had come back, and, and, and he is now expanding it and making it magnificent. He started that building project 46 years before Jesus says this. And the building project is still going. So this is about a 60-year building project, and, and, it, and it, it lives past Herod the Great, and this, this building project is still going. And it was amazing. Everything Herod the Great built was amazing because he was a man of a great ego and wanted that significance and notoriety. He, at the top of the mountain where the temple is, one of the things he did is we don't have enough space for a proper temple, so he built the temple mount. So instead of a mountaintop, he built retaining walls and made this huge area on top of a mountain for the temple. These walls are, are many, many feet high, and we'll show some pictures of that. On top of the mount, then he builds this temple, and this temple was known for its, its gold, gold that would make it hard to see if the sun hit it just right. It was known for its white marble and white stone, so much that it was sometimes called a mountain of snow. And so this was the spectacle that he made. In fact, you see that, the wording there, it was adorned with noble stones. That doesn't mean that that stones were just really dignified. No, no, noble stones signified a huge stone, a large stone. In fact, Josephus estimates that some of these stones were 45 cubits long. That's 67 and a half feet. That's, that's, That's a large stone. Um, in fact, we saw one in, in, the, in the Temple Mount as um, the, the retaining wall for the Temple Mount that was 43 feet long, 10 feet tall, and 13 to 15 feet deep. They estimate this one stone was 570 tons. That's the kind of building project Herod the Great went on. We have some slides here because you need pictures. We've got to have pictures. And so um, if you want to go to the next slide, I'll just use it as a pointer. You can, so this is a model of the temple. Keep in mind, this is the temple mount, and all of this was built up to create courtyards and an area around it. And you can see a little bit, these would have been gold, and there would have been gold up here, and it's all white. And go, go ahead and go to the next picture. This is another possible picture. These are models. We, we don't have it today. But these are ideas. This is the stone that's at the bottom of the retaining wall. This is the longest one. It's 46 feet long. Don, how, how, how deep is our sanctuary? Do you know? 70 feet. So if I went back to maybe Alex for me, maybe a little, eh, a little bit longer. That stone is that long. One stone that was brought in with modern machinery. Oh, wait. <laughs> It's amazing some of the ways they think this happened. We'll just leave that one up there before we we go to the next picture. And so this was the scale of the project. There were decorative gifts. You see that in verse 5. There were offerings, and and different countries would come in and give these offerings, and Herod would hang them in the temple, sort of like trophies. There was one with grape clusters as tall as a man, and and gold-encrusted, and it just was an amazing, amazing place. One rabbinic proverb said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. So you get the picture here? And so the Jews took pride in this. This was an amazing thing for them. And and like I said, the center of religious life, but also government life, the center of their identity as a nation was this temple mount. If this goes away, they go away. It was that important. 
Josephus wrote this, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. I love his language. As from solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. I mentioned that. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and polluting the roof. Same old problems. (laughs) Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. This was magnificent. And this was God's building. This will last forever. The problem is, this isn't God. And if the people turn from God, His justice must destroy this. And so we come to verse 6. So that's, that's, you get the picture, we're walking along, the people are just marveling at this to Jesus and, and amazed at this. And Jesus says this in 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What? Jesus, we're just bragging about this. This is amazing. This is who we are. This is our greatest accomplishment. And Jesus said, it's going away. Trouble is coming. And he's preparing them. He's preparing them for the trouble that will come. And we know in AD 70, just 37, 40 years later, that General Titus came in and this Roman, this Roman um, general came and he destroyed Jerusalem and surrounded Jerusalem. And in fact, one of the things they did was tore the stones down from on top of one another. Here's a picture of below the retaining wall, below the Temple Mount, And you can see just how high the retaining wall is. Do you see the person back there? So that's a person. Do you get the scope of the the stones? These huge stones were just torn down, so much so that as you walk along this road, there are holes in the road. It broke the stones in the road. um, They destroyed the temple within their generation. And so we know that this actually happened. This wasn't just an idle prophecy of Jesus, but he, was, he knew what was going to happen and he was preparing his followers for what would happen. And so in verse 7, we see, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? They are shocked. They are surprised. What do you mean? This can't happen. When will this be? Tell us. And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And that sets up the rest of the chapter. That sets up Jesus' answer because he is now going to answer, okay, when will this take place? And when will the end take place? Now, we, we know that these are two different things because we're 2,000 years later and we know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70 and we're still waiting for Jesus to return, right? For them, those two events were one and the same. And so they viewed the temple being destroyed as then the Messiah would, of course, come and have justice, and that would be the end of time. That would be the end of all things. And so Jesus is going to begin to explain to them the coming end of the temple and when that would be, as well as the second coming of Christ, something we're still waiting for. And we need to stop for a minute and talk about prophecy, some things we've talked about before. But if you remember prophecy... Prophecy often has this near and far aspect and often with a couple of different um, ways that it's fulfilled. And maybe it's fulfilled in one way in the short term, but then uh, history repeats itself and it's fulfilled in a longer term. A picture I've used before that I love is a picture of Mount Whitney. And um, which one do you think is Mount Whitney? Those that have gone don't say anything. (laughs) And you've seen me do this before, but Mount Whitney, by the way, is the tallest mountain in the continental United States. So which one would it be? Maybe this one? That one? It's the tallest, right? Do you realize it's not the tallest? Mount Whitney is actually over here. After you come through Keeler's Needles and almost die, then you come up here and hike to the top. Um, <laughs> some of you know what I'm saying. Um, this is the tallest mountain in the continental United States. Why does this one look taller? It's closer to us. Yeah, and so things that are closer sometimes look bigger, but we have this space. This is a great picture of prophecy because Jesus is going to to tell us prophecy that includes all of this. What about these? These are the Alabama hills that that you have right before Mount Whitney. And, And these, if you didn't know the area, 
And, and, and you can sort of tell by the, the shrubs. But these you might mistake for being right up against these because we have no perception of the valleys. You can't see the valleys because they're blocked by the first events. Where in reality, there's a huge, I won't say huge, but there's miles of valley in between. You go back down and then you go up into the, the high country. Prophecy is a lot like that. Whenever we study prophecy, and we talked about this at the beginning of Isaiah as well, some of the prophecies will deal with the short term, the destruction of the temple. And so in this case, this area is the destruction of the temple that was going to be in their lifetime. But then Jesus is also going to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, which we are still looking for, that is still coming. And it gets very difficult to say, okay, which statements are referring to which? And, and scholars have gone all over the place with that. And it's especially hard in Matthew and Mark. It seems like Luke more clearly delineates this, as you would expect a doctor and a historian to do. Um, but we, we ha- so we have to come to this text with a bit of humility. I am not going to say when Christ is returning. Um, I, I'm not going to give you a date. And in fact, some of the signs in here may not be about Christ's return directly. They may be about the fall of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that. And so I, I come to this humbly. I'm going to present one option. You, after studying, may come up with some different ideas and some different options. That's okay. But what's interesting is the fall of the temple in Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ where it's the fall of the earth These two events, it appears that Jesus is using them as mirrors of each other. That they have pretty much the same sequence of events that the world is getting worse, the world is getting worse, the world is getting worse, and then God intervenes. And these serve as mirrors of each other where much of the prophecy here has a double fulfillment where it was both pertaining to the temple in AD 70 and we're still looking forward to the coming of Christ. That makes sense? That's your, your, your prophecy 101 for the morning. But we need to see that these are, are mirrored that way. What I'm going to present to you is I think our text today, verses 8 through 24, is by and large about the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And so we need to see that as the near trouble is coming and how Christ is preparing his disciples and his followers for what is coming. And then I think in verse 25, there's a switch, end of 24, end of 25. I I think there's a switch that then he's talking about the second coming of Christ and looking at Mount Whitney or looking at the far mountains there. But there's there's still going to be some interactions in between. 10 and 11 might be about the far mountains. They might be close. But as we go through it, we'll work through some of those technical aspects. But don't miss the point as we look at the technical aspects. The point is, God is preparing his followers that trouble is coming, but he's got it under control. Don't be distressed and use it as an opportunity to proclaim his word. That's the point. And so we want to come to that. And this morning, I want to come to to our lives and say, we have have trouble in our lives, like I mentioned at at the beginning. We have things that rock our world, and the destruction of the temple would have rocked their world like nothing else. We have things that throw us for a loop that we don't understand. So can we learn from Jesus' words to his followers how to respond to those situations? I believe we can. I think we can learn how to respond to trouble in life and respond in a godly, God-honoring way. So we go on now to verse 8. And now we get into Jesus' words and what he said. And I'm going to give six different principles of what Jesus says, how to respond to trouble or how to look at this. And that'll be on the front page of your notes. On the back side of your notes are six different signs that Jesus gives. Now, again, these are signs preparing them for the fall of the temple. But because of mirroring and double fulfillment, I think they're also signs of of what we should be looking for for the return of Christ without putting a date on it and without saying, man, I'm going to sell everything, give it to to Pastor Ron, and um, (laughs) wait for Christ on my roof. That's not where we're going. So we start at verse 8 and 9. First principle that Jesus gives them is to be ready and not swayed. Be ready for trouble. Know it's coming. Expect it. Do not be swayed by, by it. Do not be swayed by what people say about it. Verse 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray. Very first command. Don't be swayed. Don't be led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not Go after them. And he's warning that there's going to be false teachers. 
And sign number one on your, on your backside is that there's false teachers. And there's going to be people that, that say Jesus has already come or that I am the Messiah. It's the second coming. And, and this is the end of all things. Follow me. We've seen this in my lifetime. I've seen news reports, and you can remember David Koresh and, and um, Guyana and some of the other cults and the, the horrid endings to some of those where people have said, I'm the Christ. I know what's coming. I have a date. These are false teachers. It's interesting in, in the wording there in verse 8, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. Literally, it means saying, I am. That's, that's what the Greek says. And so they are claiming divinity. They are claiming messiahship. And they're saying, follow me. In verse 9, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And so Jesus is preparing them, and he's stepping through some of the signs. And and the first one is, there's going to be false teachers, but don't be swayed. Be ready for them. If you know a false teacher is coming, then, then don't stray from the truth. Even today, we talk about false teachers sometimes and we say, be ready, evaluate everything a teacher says, evaluate everything that comes from this pulpit. If I'm saying something that isn't from God's word, be ready and do not be swayed. Because God's word wins. It is the standard of truth. And as we see a world falling into disarray, there's going to be more and more people that have, that say all kinds of crazy things about God and who he is and about the Bible. One, one report said there have been over 1,100 religious leaders in different parts of the world in the last 50 years. So only the last 50 years, over 1,100 have claimed to be Christ and Savior of the world. Man, we've missed it. No, Jesus says that's going to happen. Don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Trust God's word and follow it. Don't be swayed. See, distressing times can cause us to lose faith in God. Can call us to, to want to, can, can cause us to want to alter our view of God, to question whether He's sovereign, to question whether He's in control, to question whether He's loving. Don't question those truths. Don't be swayed. And Jesus here in His graciousness warns them, this is gonna happen. So that way this doesn't surprise you. Be on guard. Then in, in verse 9, 9 through 11, the, the next thing he says is be calm and do not be distressed. Be calm and not distressed. Be people of peace. It says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And, and again, he's setting the scene where there's going to be wars, there's going to be nation against nation. He says that in the next verse. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He's saying, That's one of the signs. In fact, that's sign number two, wars and political unrest. On the back page, wars and political unrest. And again, he's warning them, this world is getting worse. It's really interesting at the the end of verse 9. These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And and the idea there is, okay, these these things are going to happen, but it's still not the end because these things are going to happen. It's a fallen world. And there's going to be wars. There's going to be false teachers. And we should expect it rather than be surprised at it. Durant, a historian, after looking at recorded history, he said in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. There's been wars and rumors of wars since recorded history. And again, it's because we live in a sinful, stained world. And Jesus is saying, don't run out and think it's the end yet. That's just part of normal life. This world is a mess. Don't panic every time something bad happens. And we can do that in our own lives. We can, we can get frustrated and we can get distressed and we can panic. But in a fallen world, those things happen and God knows they happen and he's prepared for it. He's prepared to walk us through that. This world is a mess. Politics. That's all I'm going to say there. (laughs) 
You know, verse 11 goes on to say some other ways this world's a mess. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. We've seen natural disasters. We've seen Hurricane Florence on the East Coast. This last week we saw Hurricane Michael and and whole towns leveled at the, the incredible force of the winds in Florida. We've seen earthquakes in Indonesia. They've been rocked by several and another tsunami where many people lost their lives. I have an app, an earthquake app on my phone, and it, it sends me a notification every time there's an earthquake of over 6.0 somewhere in the world. And every day, there's one or two. We, we don't feel them here, and, and we're an earthquake country. But every day, there's a major earthquake or two or more all over the world. And if you go to, to smaller earthquakes, every minute there are earthquakes. These things are happening because our world is coming apart as it seems. Now, now, I know that may not sound like a message of hope this morning. We're not done. But isn't it comforting to know that God knows it's going to happen and says it's going to happen and says, don't worry? And, and so the key in this section is to, to look at these verses in verse 9. When you hear of these things, do not be terrified. They must take place before the end will come. And so he's preparing. And I love that he's doing that. You know, we, we could go down the list of even more things out of the news. We can go to the nuclear aspirations in the Middle East. We could go to the attacks on religious freedom. And we can see that Christians are being mocked and legislated against for Christian views. And we can come away with that. We have a choice of how we come away from that. We can be distressed and we can say, woe is us. The world is ending Let's crawl into our hole, lose hope, and hide. But maybe we get tacos first. Because there's this idea of, of we're so scared of the world, but we go on with normal life. It's, it's this weird setting that we can fall into being trapped and being distressed. You know, there, there, are, there are all kinds of places you can get news. And some of the places that get news are just gloom and doom and what is happening in this world. I suggest you hit delete and don't follow those. Because those are distressing you. And those are counter to what God says of how to view the world. It's getting worse. It's going to get worse. But God's got it. So he's going through these, these signs and, and he's going through what's going to happen before the fall of Jerusalem. And I would say he's also going through these signs that will happen before the second coming that we're experiencing today. But he's going to come back. And he's going to make things right because he is just. And he is loving. Sign number three there out of verse 11 is cataclysmic natural disasters. I've always wanted to use cataclysmic in a sermon cataclysmic natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, pestilences. Now to them, understand, these things would have been tied with God's judgment. And and, and they will be tied to his judgment at the end of time, but really they're a result of this increasingly fallen world. You've heard me say that multiple times. And that's the point that Jesus is getting across here. The end of 11, there's going to be tremors and great signs from heaven, something in the sky, something among the stars. But in the middle of all that, Jesus says, be calm. I think of some of the the be calm shirts. He says, be calm. This is going to happen. Not a surprise. I've got it. So then we get to, to number three. And this, I think, is the heart of the text. 12 through 15, I would highlight and underline and memorize. In fact, the memory verse for the day comes out of 13. This is the heart of what he has. Because he now goes back to another sign and he jumps to just ahead of the earthquakes and the political unrest. He says, but before all that, oh wait, but there's more. (laughs) But before all that, they're going to lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Thanks, Jesus. We are really looking forward to the next few years now. And, And he's saying... And again, he's preparing them. He said, it's going to get worse. They're going to respond to you. They're going to persecute you. In fact, your own people will. The synagogues represent the Jewish religious culture. Your own people are going to betray you and come at you. Down, down a little bit more in verse 16, your loved ones are going to betray you. 
they are going to, to turn you in and turn on you. Life is hard. Things are difficult. And Jesus sets it all up for verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, if, if you were thrown in jail, persecuted, earthquakes, cataclysmic events around you, wars all around you, is opportunity the word you'd use? No. We use words like, I'm distressed, I'm despairing, the world is ending, woe is me, I'm going to go crawl in my cave. But Jesus uses the word opportunity. And catch that because that is so important to understanding what he wants from his followers. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And point number three there is be looking to use trials as as an opportunity and don't despair or get defensive. Be looking to use trials as an opportunity and don't despair or get defensive. We'll add in verses 14 and 15. 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, okay, so we're not to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in us? Um, But that's not what it says. If you go to NIV or New American Standard, the the wording they use is is actually a little more descriptive of what the the original was. They say, don't be preparing a defense, a court defense. And the idea is you don't have to worry about fighting injustice by proving you're right, by, by defending yourself in court, by, by winning at all costs. Jesus is saying, that's not the point here. The point is, how are you going to use this as an opportunity for the gospel? It's not about the injustice. It's not even about making the injustice right or, or having the perfect defense that puts people in their place. It's about how will my actions show who Christ is to these people that are evil and attacking. That is dramatically different from our culture. That is dramatically different from our nature. Let's not just put it on culture. We are a people that love justice, that love to be right, that love to defend ourselves. We are offended when people come at us and wrongly accuse us. They were wrongly accused to the point of death. And Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And he's not being annoying. He's painting a picture of how the worst situations of this world can be used for the best of the kingdom. And we miss it. Sometimes we win the battle and lose the war by by making ourselves right and demanding justice instead of pointing people to Christ. Sign number four here on the backside is there's going to be persecution of believers. There's going to be persecution of believers. And Jesus gives this so they know that they're not worried that things have gone drastically wrong. Jesus said, no, this is going to happen. So be ready to use it. Be looking to use it to bear witness. In 14, don't use it to defend yourself. Don't, don't have a great court defense. God can be your defender. And then in 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus said, you're not even the one that's going to defend yourself anyway. That's my job. I will give you those words. Do you remember some people he said that to? He said that to Moses. He said, I will give you the words that you need. He said that to Jeremiah. I will give you the words that you need. That implies we're walking with God. That implies we're asking him to give us those words. We're looking for him to give us those words. This is a life-changing thought. If we can come and say every trouble, everything that rocks my world is an opportunity for someone to see Jesus, that changes how we view those troubles. And so we, we, we are hit by a sickness or a terminal illness in our family and, and our, our world is rocked and, and we can get distressed, but how do we see that as an opportunity to share the gospel? Maybe that's an opportunity to be involved with doctors and nurses and people that are visiting that we would never have any other way. What if souls are won because of that illness? We, we, we have all kinds of things that we lose a loved one. 
And I've seen people that, that have taken that and despaired. And I've seen people that have said, it is hard and we are grieving, but we are going to use this situation to share Christ. And I've seen people come to know the Lord at some of those memorial services that would not have come to know the Lord any other way. Are we looking to praise God and direct glory to Him? Or are we looking to make our lives easier and and preserve our own reputation? See, when someone gets defensive, it, it actually usually gets pretty ugly. And there's all this focus on the situation and on self and not much on God. Paul says in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, and we see this a number of places in the New Testament, but I think this one's really clear. He says, I want you to know, brothers, and, and he's writing probably from prison. This is one of the prison epistles. Life stinks. His ministry has ceased, some would say. It hasn't. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do you see how he's, he's doing what Jesus said? It's not on, I was falsely imprisoned. I can't believe the courts did this. I can't believe I was accused of this. He said, no, what's really happened is advance the gospel. This is incredible, guys. It has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, these guards were chained to Paul. I love it. People that would normally not hear the gospel or walk away when they would start to hear the gospel, they had to guard Paul. And he used that as an opportunity to say, let me tell you why I'm here. Let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. And instead of crawling in a hole and eating tacos, he was there proclaiming the word of God. And it wasn't just that, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident to the Lord in my my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He became an example to other people. This is life-changing. What is going on in your life right now that you are tempted to despair? What is going on in your life that's an injustice you are fighting? Can you put that aside and say, how can I tell someone about Jesus through this? Village, that will rock the world. Because there is nothing like being a doctor or a nurse and seeing a family that should be at, at grief's door somehow finding strength in God and proclaiming who God is. There is nothing in this political climate like how we treat other people that might draw them to Christ. In a, in a, in a political climate where there is anger and hatred and fighting, what if we were to show love to our neighbor That should be in the Bible. It is. What if we showed love to each other and listened and cared and entered their lives without having to be politically right? And I'm not talking right or left. Politically correct. But we get caught up and Satan gets gets us caught up in these ancillary issues and we forget it's about the gospel, people. Sinners will act like sinners. People that don't know Christ will act like they don't know Christ. This is not shocking. What they need isn't to be corrected in their ideology. What they need is Jesus Christ and to know the gospel. And when that is our focus, that changes everything. And I know I'm spending more time here. And and I've got to say, one of the reasons I'm spending more time here is this has been a really hard week for me on this issue. And, And... And God has challenged me on this point, this issue, because apparently I I have a lot of justice in me. (laughs) My family's like, duh. (laughs) And perhaps one of my kids gets a lot of that from me. (laughs) And we get to talk about that a lot. But there have just been a number of situations this week that have been unjust and wrong. And I have found myself defensive. I have found myself angry. One of the days I'm just pacing the parking lot here because I can't get past what happened that day. And then I go study this. Man. So if my toes are stepped on, maybe yours will be too. (laughs) Because God pounded home to me, it's not about the injustice. 
in one of the situations this week, just particularly difficult, I, I, I found myself just consumed by, well, how can we fix this? How can we make that? How can we prove ourselves right? How can we prove this case? And someone else came along and said, look what God's doing through this. And I was humbled and taught to look for what God is doing. Don't be working on being right. Bear witness. See it as an opportunity. He will answer. He will give the words. Are you willing to stand up and use those opportunities for him? We need to move through the rest of the passage, but that's the heart of the passage right there and the heart of what I think Jesus is saying. Verses 16 through 19, we need to be assured of God's hand rather than worried about man's worst. Be assured of God's hand that he is in control, he's taking care of it, he is protecting you rather than worried about man's worst. In verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. The good news just keeps coming. But it's about the opportunity not about having a perfect life. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so we see betrayal there. We see hatred. And in fact, sign number five on the back of your page is betrayal, death, and hatred of believers. Betrayal, death, and hatred of believers. These are signs that that the end is coming soon. For them, the temple, for us, that God is coming back soon. But verse 18, again, he's, he's, he's so gracious in this. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish. Now he's not talking physical death here because he just said in verse 16, some of you will be killed. But he's talking bigger picture. Spiritually, God has you. He is protecting you. You will be in eternity with him even if your life ends here on earth. Your spiritual lives will be protected. In fact, in verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And that word for lives is souls. So we know he's talking spiritually. He even cares about the hairs on our head, which is more encouraging to some of us than others. (laughs) Sorry, just think about that one. (laughs) Or the hairs that were on our head. His hand is at work in a bigger picture than we see here. Can we accept that? Here, God might use circumstances and allow circumstances to give us opportunities that wouldn't come up any other way. But the bigger picture is we're going to be in eternity with him if we know him, if we've repented of our sins, if we follow him. And so betrayal, death, hatred of believers, doesn't matter. That's man's worst And it can't stop us from eternity with our Savior. It can't stop God's hand. This is incredibly encouraging. Out of verse 19 as well, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Is point number five, which goes with four. Persevere in faithfulness and don't give up. Persevere in faithfulness and don't give up. Your endurance, your perseverance will gain your lives. Moving to the last section, 20 to 24. The sixth point of how to respond godly to trouble. Be challenged to repentance rather than stay under God's judgment. Be challenged to repent rather than stay under God's judgment. Now Jesus gets, he's been doing these events and this, is, this section is why I believe this whole first section is about the destruction of Jerusalem primarily because now in 20 to 24 he describes this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And the other gospels say abomination of desolation and he's using language of Daniel. It's gonna, Jerusalem's gonna be surrounded by armies. They're gonna set up siege camps. In fact, I have a picture if you, you jump to that picture, this is actually Masada, not Jerusalem, but just a few miles away. Do you see these squares? Those were called siege camps. 
And the Romans set up these siege camps all the way around Masada. They did the same thing to Jerusalem. You can see a little low wall here. They, put a, they built a wall all the way around. When, when they besieged the city, they besieged the city. They knew how to do it. And so they set up camps all the way around. They set up a wall all the way around. And their goal was to starve people out. And if they could prevent any food and, if possible, any water from getting in, eventually you win. You just have to sit out and play cards in your camp and you can win the war. And, and so that is what they were going to do to Jerusalem. We know that they did do that. They surrounded Jerusalem. They besieged the city. And in verse 21, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Get out of there. Usually the city is where you go. You say, no, no, don't. It's falling. And let those and let not those who are in, out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And don't miss that verse. Because it's the idea of these are days that they will get their just due. They, these are days of judgment and of justice. And village, God is just. He is loving, but He is righteous and He is just. And in His justice, He will always deal with sin. Always. And a question I have asked before is, would you rather have an unjust God? Just think of all the places that can leave. No, He's a just God. And sometimes we chafe at this and we're like, Why is he so mean to punish sin? Because a just God must punish sin. We want evil in this world punished. The problem is we don't want our evil in this world punished. But God is just and he will punish all evil. And God is saying, this is why this is going to happen to Jerusalem. Why is he telling him this? I think it's to say, don't don't go there. Repent. Don't be part of this sin. And we see all through Scripture, his goal of announcing judgment is always repent. You have a chance. And this hits home for us, guys. Because if you're sitting here today and you you have never given your life to Christ, you have never repented, then God is just and he will deal with that sin. Now, he'll deal with all of our sin. It's not that we get a pass if we follow Jesus. But when we follow Jesus, we are saying he died on the cross. And as he hung on that cross, he took the penalty for our sin. God is just and his justice was meted out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And the question is, do I want Jesus to take my penalty or do I want to take the penalty? That's the question of salvation. And that's why you hear us talk about the gospel every week. Because it is such good news that Jesus loved us so much to say, I'll take the penalty. I will die on that cross and be brutally tortured in your place so you don't have to if you follow me. And so I believe firmly this is a challenge to repent rather than stay under God's judgment and a call to repent. And he goes on to say how bad it will be. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... It's going to be hard on them. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. And those are the people on which it would have been hardest. And he's warning them. Verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This beautiful, magnificent city will be destroyed because God is just. And they have rebelled against him. But the last phrase, and that's going to lead into next week's sermon, the second half of the chapter, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so in the grand scheme of things, Jesus and the cross and his ascension and then then Jerusalem falling, that represented the start of an age where the gospel is available for Gentiles. And, and, and the gospel will be sent to the world and to the ends of the world. And we have an opportunity to come to him. And that age is, we're living in this age now. We are in the time of the Gentiles now where the gospel is still going out to the whole world. The good news is still going out. And then in God's divine sovereignty, when that is fulfilled, when that is completed, when the, when the gospel has gone where it needs to go, Jesus will come back. And that's, the, that's next week. So come back. 
we get to talk about the, the Son of Man returning. Sign number six on the back, the destruction of Jerusalem is one of the signs before the coming of the Son of Man. And this one's already happened, A.D. 70. But just coming back as we close, this world has trouble. This world can be distressing if we let it be. We are going to be hit, and if you haven't yet, you're going to be hit with this fallen world and things that don't make sense and things that are angering and injustice and things that that hurt and we grieve over. So how do we deal with that in a fallen world as a redeemed people? We said six things today. We said be ready and not swayed. Don't doubt God. Be calm and not distressed. Again, don't doubt God in His hand. Be looking to use trials as an opportunity and don't despair because that's why God allows them. Be assured of God's hand rather than worried about man's worst. Persevere in faithfulness and don't give up. And be challenged to repentance rather than stay under God's judgment. So who are you going to show Jesus to this week? Who's going to know who Jesus is in your life because of the circumstances in your life this week. There is power in your story of how God is working through you. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that it's tough to live in this world because you've told us. And Lord, help us not to despair and focus on that. Help us not to be discouraged but help us to know that in your divine sovereignty, you are setting up situations for us to show you to other people. And Lord, that is our purpose. That is our goal. That is why we are here to make disciples and help us not to be distracted from making disciples by the junk of this world. Lord, I pray for this congregation. I pray for them because I know trouble is coming in their lives. And I pray that they would not be swayed, but that they would firmly hold your truth and use those as opportunities for you. Lord God, may we be your people and show that even in difficulty. In your name.